Well, good morning. Good morning and welcome to Grace Bible Church. I pray that your week has been encouraging. I'm always encouraged, I'm always encouraged to gather with the saints on the, on the Lord's Day. Have you ever wondered, have you ever wondered why we gather on Sunday instead of on Saturday? Very, very early Christians followed the Jewish custom of gathering on the seventh day of the week. They gathered on, on well, I thought I was ready to go. Here we go. Okay. They gathered on Sunday or Saturday. In Acts, in Acts, in the book of Acts, Paul would actually go into the synagogues with the Jews on the Sabbath day to preach Jesus as the Messiah. But as time progressed, Christians began to worship on the first day of the week, the day that Jesus was raised from the dead. And in time, that day became known or came to be known as the, the Lord's Day. Uh, in Revelation 1.10, John says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. And there are examples in the New Testament of Christians gathering on the first day of the week. We see this in Acts chapter 20, verse 7, where it says, On the first day of the, day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul began speaking. And we also see that in 1 Corinthians 16, 2, where it says, On the first day of every week, each one of you is to set aside or set something aside. So the idea was, is that the Christians met on the first day of the week. Based on those examples from the New Testament, Christians have historically met on the first day of the week. Most likely this was done because the Jewish Sabbath observance by the Jews was so man-centered and there was, con- there was all this conflict with the Jews. Therefore, Christians must have separated themselves from the Saturday observance. Now, it's interesting to me that we actually rent a building from Seventh-day Adventists here at Grace Bible Church. And as most of you know, they observe Sabbath, the Sabbath on uh, a Saturday, the last day of the week. Now, this, that arrangement allows us to rent the building on Sunday, the building being free on Sunday because they observe the Sabbath. But they observe the Sabbath because they believe that it is still binding for, for, for followers of Christ. Now, I think you will agree that many who call themselves Christians are confused with how to, how to apply the, old, or the law from the Old Testament. Uh, including the Sabbath. Now, some of you may even wonder, you may have thought, why don't we observe the Sabbath on the seventh day, or why don't we meet on the seventh day? A few weeks ago, I took the time to show you why we don't observe the Sabbath or follow the ceremonial laws from the Old Testament. And the Apostle Paul actually sums up the biblical view in Colossians 2, 16-17, where he exhorts Christians to let... to the to, let no one be to, to judge you in food or drink or in respect uh, to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are only a shadow of what is to come, but the substance is or belongs to Christ. And in Colossians 2.20-23, he challenges them by asking, <coughs> excuse me, I've got to get myself sorted here. He challenges them by asking, if you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees? Do not handle, nor taste, nor touch, which deal with everything destined to perish with use, which are in accordance with the commands and teachings of men, which, matters, which are matters having to be sure a word of wisdom, which matters 
having to be sure a word of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. Ultimately, what he's asking the church at Colossae is, why are you focusing on, or why are you using a man-made religion that focuses on external conformity, yet doesn't address the heart? Ultimately, ultimately it is not about, here's the, here's the point, it's not about the day that you set aside for worship, It's not about the things you handle, taste, or touch. It's not about the commands and teaching of man. Now, the answer to these things can be found in God's Word and summed up in Colossians 3, 1 through 3. And this is what, this is the Apostle Paul. He says this, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth, for you have died and your life has been hidden with Christ in God. Now, beloved, our worship is to be every day. Is to be every day. Our worship is to be every day from a heart to please our Lord. And as such, as such, we keep seeking the Lord every hour of every day, and we need to do that. So it doesn't matter what you, you do. You, it doesn't matter if you follow the, the commands of the law. That's not the issue. The issue is our hearts. Now with that being said, this morning we're returning to our study in the Gospel of Matthew, the King and His glory. We're currently studying the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5-7. through Today, we're continuing to study the crux of Jesus' main argument in his sermon in verses 17 through 20. That's Matthew 5, 17 through 20. As we complete these verses, we'll continue to consider the nature of man's righteousness versus God's righteousness. And in doing so, we're going to continue to grapple with the purpose of God's law or the purpose of the law in Christian life. Now, let me read our text in Matthew 5, 17 through 20. It says this, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them He shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for this time. Lord, I pray that you would um, settle my heart. That you would give me the, the voice to preach your word in a way that brings glory to you. And it brings clarity to these truths that our Lord Jesus is presenting here in this text. In Christ's name, amen. Well, according to an October 2017 NPR article written by Michael Insko, it says this, Every Thursday and Friday morning, Rabbi Moshe Tauber leaves his home in Rockland County, New York at about 3.30 a.m., He arrives in Manhattan an hour later. Then he drives the 20-mile length of a nearly invisible series of wires that surrounds most of the borough. He travels around Manhattan, marking in a small notebook where he notices breaks in the line. 
known as the Arab, the wire is a symbolic boundary. It allows observant Jews to carry out a range of ordinary activities otherwise forbidden on the Shabbat. Any necessary repairs must be finished before sundown on Friday when Shabbat begins. Throughout Shabbat, observant Jews are prohibited from performing many basic activities. The observance of this law has been updated over time to reflect current technologies such as cars, electricity, and keys. Moving objects between public and private areas, for example, is forbidden. A Reuben transcend this restrictive rule by serving as a symbolic border that links together many private places in the community. This permits people to ferry keys, children, and canes, and push wheelchairs and strollers. A single break in any part of the line voids that symbolic space. According to the 100 pages devoted to Aruban in the ancient Talmud, the boundary is only effective when the entire line is intact. Sometimes it's the elements, but more often construction is responsible for breaks in the line. The wires attached to telephone and light poles can be severed or simply pushed down since the, since the Arub needs to or must remain at the top of the pole. Aruban have been around for about 2,000 years. Manhattan's line has been in place in some form or another for just over a century. According to Zachary Levine, the director of exhibitions and collections at the National Building Museum, he says, an Arab creates a visual language that defines space. The, the series of practically invisible lines become a necessity that quote, benefits the most vulnerable people of the community. He sees it as a way for communities to come together, but also as a a way for the more affluent to give back. With a budget of at least $150,000, the Arab is funded entirely by the Jewish community, with a considerable portion of that support coming from wealthy philanthropists. For six days of the week, or to the passerby outside the community, the Arab is just, a, is just a simple, more or less invisible set of strands across physical space. But during Shabbat, the holy day, it takes an important meaning for those who rely on the symbolic border to expand the domain of their homes while staying true to their belief system. As Levine puts it, the Arab doesn't matter unless it matters to you. Now, You may ask yourself, you have to ask yourself, right? Why some fishing line strung around the perimeter of a city matters to the Jews living in New York? If you think about that? Or any number of a city, this is not just New York, it's any of a number of cities around the world. Jerusalem also has that line going around it. It matters because rabbinic law has reinterpreted the Sabbath the day of rest commanded by God for man-made purposes. God commanded Israel to rest during the seventh day of each week. This day of rest allowed them to reflect on God's perfect and holy creation, which reflected on His holy character. It was for them to remember that God created the world to be at rest in Him. Now, the Jewish religious leaders twisted God's intent by, imply, by applying their own legalistic interpretations of what it meant to rest. And in doing so, the Sabbath, or the Shabbat, became more about the day itself 
and what activities were acceptable or forbidden. The people became completely unconcerned with the understanding, with understanding and upholding God's holy intent for the day. Therefore, they resorted to making up an elaborate series of do's and don'ts to govern the day. The day. These have been debated, they've been interpreted, they've been reinterpreted throughout many centuries since before Jesus' day. Now, church, in his Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5-7, through 7, Jesus struck at the very heart of this grotesque and twisted understanding of God's law. He wanted his disciples to understand that God himself defines good works, not the scribes, not the Pharisees, nor anyone who twists the law in any way. That includes us. Over the past several weeks, we've been slowly working through Jesus' main proposition statement of this amazing sermon. In these verses, King Jesus reveals two shocking truths about kingdom righteousness. First, we've seen that you must recognize that kingdom righteousness completely concurs with Old Testament righteousness. And second, we are going to see that that kingdom righteousness we, we're going to see that the kingdom righteousness comprehensively challenges pharisaical or you might say legalistic righteousness let's very quickly review the first shocking truth kingdom righteousness completely concurs with old testament righteousness you see in matthew 5:17 if you look at the text jesus did not come to abolish the Old Testament. He did not come to abolish the law and prophets. That's what he says in Matthew 5.17. He didn't want them to entertain the notion that he had come to change the Old Testament in any way. The Old Testament, according to Jesus, stood as Moses and the prophets had written it. And it could be understood just as they had intended it. As such... His teaching wasn't some new understanding about the the Old Testament. He didn't come to change it, the Old Testament. Instead, according to Jesus in Matthew 5.17, he came to fulfill the Old Testament. In other words, the Old Testament had pointed to him from the very early chapters of Genesis throughout the Torah and into the prophets. Every wisdom book, every prophet had ultimately pointed to the coming, coming Messiah. He says that in Luke 24, 27. He interpreted to them, to those, they were walking on the road to Emmaus, he interpreted to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Well, he's talking about the Old Testament scriptures. The question then becomes, what does Jesus mean by fulfill? He means that he is, that Jesus is the embodiment of the Old Testament. He himself is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. When you see Jesus in Scripture, you are seeing divine righteousness on display. In other words, what He did was holy and righteous because He was holy and righteous. What He said and what He did reflected His holy and righteous character. Put simply, Jesus fulfilled the law's demands with His life, His death, and His resurrection. And in doing so, He fulfilled the law's moral demands... His, the law's judicial demands, and the law's ceremonial obligations. Therefore, as Christians, we are no longer obligated to the law. We are now slaves to Christ, and we live to obey Him, and as such, we obey the law of Christ. And we do so by recognizing that the law 
was the law that's found in the Old Testament was our tutor unto Christ. That's what Paul says in Galatians 3, 24 and 25. But he also says now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. We're no longer under the law, but we're now under the law of Christ. We're slaves to him. Now we also understand that the law is summed up by the two greatest commandments, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. And we live in this way to please our Lord who loves us and knows what's best for us. And, and we by, by no means as Christians do we ignore the law by living according to Judges 21-25, according to what is right in our own eyes. We don't live that way because we want to be pleasing to Him and we know that He knows what's best for us. And as Christians, we have to recognize that the law all, has always and will always reveal God's holiness and reveal His righteousness. And in that way, the law is holy and will never pass away. And that's exactly what Jesus says in Matthew 5.18. He says, or He contended for the permanence of God's holy law. Now, over the past several weeks, we've seen that in making this statement in 5.18, Matthew 5.18, Jesus contends for the inerrancy of Scripture, and he affirms the historical grammatical hermeneutic. We saw that last week. In other words, he affirms that every part of Scripture, all the way down to each letter, and even the, the verb tenses have been breathed out by God, and they're exactly as he intended them to be. And in doing so, he affirms that the, the historical grammatical hermeneutic, in effect, he is saying, he's teaching that the Old Testament will be fulfilled just as it was written. The question then, though, is why is Jesus making these assertions about the law? Well, we saw this in our introduction. Can you imagine living in a world? I want you to stop and think for a second. Can you imagine living in a world where putting up some fishing line around the city, around the perimeter of the city, so that you can live within it, where putting up some fishing line is a matter of holiness? Can you imagine that? Can you imagine that thinking, if I don't eat kosher, that I'm not righteous? Can you imagine living in that world? Or, or that tithing down to, to each spice in my spice rack makes me holy. But that's the world that the Jewish people lived in. The, Jewish, the Jews of Jesus' day and many Orthodox Jews in our own day think this way. They're trapped by this thinking. E even many who call themselves Christians don't understand and they misapply God, the law of God. And they're trapped in that thinking. But Jesus wanted the Jews to recognize that their interpretation of good works was wrong-headed and wrongly directed. Good works isn't about living in a city with, with fishing line around it. That's not what good works is defined as. Well, what is good works and what are they defined as? Well, the purpose of the law is to point us to our need for a Savior because the works of the law will never justify us. But as Christians, we can never forget James's word, words in James 2.17 where he says, Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead by itself. For the Christian, for you and I, it is the right application of God's law that defines good works. Let me say that again. For the Christian, for you and I, it is the right application of God's law that defines good works. That's how we know we're doing good works. If you've died with Christ, pharisaical, legalistic righteousness has perished. Let me say that again. If you have died with Christ, pharisaical, pharisaical and legalistic righteousness has perished to us. These things have no value to us. 
And they do not, according to Paul, they do not help us in the battle with sin. They truly, truly, they lead us away from Christ. They lead us away from Christ. They have no value against fleshly indulgence, and they lead us away from the truth of Christ. Therefore, Jesus taught His disciples the second shocking truth. Kingdom righteousness comprehensively challenges pharisaical, really all legalistic righteousness. Let me say that again. Kingdom righteousness comprehensively challenges pharisaical, really all legalistic righteousness. First we see in Matthew 5.19, Jesus confronted those who would nullify any part of the law. Look at your text in Matthew 5.19. He says, Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. So the question is then, what does Jesus mean by the least of these commandments? As we dive into these verses, we need to, to ensure that we understand Jewish thought toward the law. They said, I said last week it's 548, but they said there were actually 613 commands in the law. They classified some of those commands as heavy or great and some as, as light. The scribes frequently argued about the greatest and the least of those commandments. As a matter of fact, they ranked them from the greatest to the least. And on occasion, they asked Jesus uh, uh, his opinion on which were the greatest and the least. Matthew 22 actually records one of those times. And of course, Jesus responded with the two great commandments. So they wanted to know what he thought was the greatest commandment. And he responded and said, well, let me give you the two greatest commandments, which sums up the law and the prophets. Now, so when Jesus refers to the, to the least of these commandments in Matthew 5.19, he's alluding to these endless arguments and wranglings about the matters of law, about matters of law. That's among the scribes. Ultimately, Jesus is saying that no, not one of God's commands would be, should be annulled. So, what does Jesus mean by whoever annuls? Well, there are two options. There are two options. He could mean that anyone who breaks the least of, the, of God's commandments, so anyone who breaks them, breaks this commandment, the least of the commandments, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. It is, true that, it is true that breaking God's command makes us a transgressor of the law, but I don't think that's Jesus' point. I would argue, I would argue that he means, he means to set aside, to set aside as not applicable. It has the idea of changing or even repealing it could have the, the nuance of weakening the law's authority. This goes beyond breaking the law. It means to regard the law as null and void, that it doesn't count. It's a, it, you could say it's a complete disregard of the law's authority. So with this statement, he's strengthening his answer in 517 to any accusation that he came to abolish or do away with the law of the prophets. He said in 5.7, do not think that I came to abolish the law of the prophets. He, not only did he not come to ab abolish the, 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 prophets, the, the, the law and the prophets, he came to fulfill them. So not only did he not come to abolish, he says in, in Matthew 5, in, in our current verse 5.19, anyone who does shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. He's strengthening what he's saying. So the question then becomes, what does it mean to be the least in the kingdom of heaven? Well, to understand that phrase, we need to recognize that Jesus is actually using a turn of phrase here. Look back at your text in Matthew 5.19. He says, 
Whoever then annuls the least of these commandments shall be called least. You see, you hear the turn of phrase there. Whoever annuls the least of these commandments shall be called least, the least, or least in the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus is using this turn of phrase to highlight that anyone who ignores or sets aside any of the Lord's commandments will be, will be how they will be reviewed in the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, I don't see this as him ranking people in the kingdom. Metaphorically speaking, let's just say it this way, metaphorically speaking, you won't rank very high in the kingdom of heaven if you annul even the least of these commandments. Said another way, said another way, you won't be celebrated in heaven if you annul even the least of God's commands. As a matter of fact, as a matter of fact, if you are guilty of annulling even the least of them, you will be called the least. Does that make sense? You will, if, you, if you annul or are guilty of annulling any of them, you will be called least. And that's the turn of phrase. Some commentators point out that even though they're called the least, at least they, were, they are in the kingdom. But I don't think that's Jesus' point here. I think he's saying that the kingdom ethic is such that every one of God's commands will be upheld and celebrated in the kingdom. Let me say that again. I think that he's saying that the kingdom ethic is such that every one of God's commands will be upheld and celebrated in the kingdom. Every one of them will be celebrated as good and right. And therefore, we need to celebrate them as good and right, and we should never ignore them. And Jesus confronted anyone who annuls them and any, any one of them, and, and, and anyone who would teach others to do the same. He confronted them and said, they shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. We ought to really stop and think about that for a second. We ought to think about how we look at the Old Testament, how we understand the Old Testament, because when Jesus says you'll be called least in the, the kingdom of heaven, I don't think that's a good thing. I think that's kind of scary, actually. On the other hand, Jesus commended those who loved, who loved the law. Look back at your text in 519. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. What we teach and what we believe matters to God. Let me say that again. What we teach and what we believe matters to God. Faith and works are inextricably tied together. Works of the law, let me just make sure I, you're, I'm clear about this, works of the law will never get you into the kingdom. Let me say it again. Works of the law will never get you into the kingdom. But true faith, true faith will result in good works toward God and man. That's James 2.17 which I quoted earlier, even so faith, if it has no works, is dead by itself. If you have true faith, then you're going to have good works. And they're going to shine before men and that's so that they may glorify the, your Father in heaven. And James says, even so faith, without, if it has no works, is dead by itself. Well, the Apostle Paul says it this way in Ephesians 2.8-10. through 10. In verse 10, he says, if you remember 2.8, for by grace you've been saved through faith, this is not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of, of works, so that no man may boast. So we understand that we're saved by grace, through faith, 
that our works have nothing to do with it. Our works of the law will never get you into the kingdom. But then he says this in verse 10, For we are his workmanship, created in Jesus, in Christ Jesus, for, what do you think? Good works. Which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. You see, as Christians... You and I, we have a responsibility to understand how the law works. We must be able to apply it properly to the Christian life, and we must obey it. That's, I mean, there's nothing, I mean, you can't understand it in any other way, and be right, that is. We must never disobey or disregard the law by teaching and preaching cheap grace. You know, all you have to do is say a prayer and, and God saves you. It doesn't matter what you, how you live your life. We can't do that. True faith always leads to good works. And we have to recognize that true grace results in obedience and good works. And Paul and James agree with Jesus on this point, which you would expect. Back in Matthew 5.19, Jesus commends those who do and teach God's commands. The one who does shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So, so many folks want to pit grace and law against one another, but Jesus didn't do that. Truly, we see here that he commends those who obey the law and teach others to do so. And we've also seen that James and Paul both teach that we are to obey God's commands by doing good works. And I, I reminded you in Matthew 5.16, Jesus told his disciples to let their light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. And John Stott says it this way, but because he has not come to abolish but to fulfill, and because not an iota or a dot, a dot will pass from the law until all is fulfilled, therefore greatness in the kingdom of God will be measured by conformity to it. That ought to shake your world if you, if you think that it, 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 it's all by... Uh, I mean, yes, we're saved by grace, but that, that works have nothing to do with the, our, the Christian life. In the words of John MacArthur, he says, Greatness is not determined by gifts, success, popularity, reputation, or size of ministry, but by a believer's view of Scripture as revealed in his life and teaching." So greatness, according to MacArthur, is, is by a believer's view of Scripture as revealed in his life and teaching. But I've raised the, the following questions on several occasions. Who defines good works? And on whose authority are we to do good works? Who judges whether we are in conformity with God's law? Well, these questions are just as critical today as they were in Jesus' day. At the time of Jesus' ministry, it was the scribes and the Pharisees who fulfilled the role of defining good works. That's what we have to recognize here. It was the scribes and the Pharisees who had the role of defining good works in the Jewish society. They were the authority of the day who judged conformance to God's commands. Jesus himself wasn't contradicting God's law. He wasn't contradicting God's commands. He was, in fact, contradicting and challenging the scribes and Pharisees who were guilty of perverting God's laws and laying heavy burdens on God's people. 
like putting fishing line around a city and having to log into a website to see if the fishing line is up or not before I can actually do something on, on, on the Sabbath. You see how crazy that is? Look at your text in 520. In 520, Jesus challenges all those who misapply the law. In 520, he says, For I say to you, that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, as we consider this challenge, so Jesus challenged those who misapply the law. Now, that again... That ought to be that ought to perk your ears a little bit because if we misapply the law, our Lord is challenging that. Okay, so who were the scribes? So who were the scribes? The scribes were the trained theologians of Israel. They expounded, developed, and administered the law. They were the the arbiters, if you will, in the courts of justice. As such, they were trained to interpret the law of Moses and to apply it to settle disputes between parties. Uh, they, they also participated as scholars, as scholars of the law. And as scholars, they studied the law down to its finer details and, and minutiae. They, they, they prided themselves on having great knowledge of trivial matters of the law. They knew trivial information such as the number of letters or words in a book as an example. You might might think of them as the academics of of Jesus' day. Second, you you might ask, well, you may be asking, who are the Pharisees? Now, interestingly, the, the Pharisees were actually followers of the scribes. They were actually followers of the scribes. The scribes were the scholars who developed the pattern of, of the righteous and holy Jew. So they developed this pattern of what it looked like to be the righteous and holy Jew. Now, the Pharisees practically carried out the pattern set by the scribes as closely as possible. It might be, it kind of it would be like me preaching on a Sunday and telling you how to live, and you go and live. So I would be kind of be, the, in, that, in that scenario, I'd be the scribe and you would be the Pharisee. Not that we're scribe, the scribes and Pharisees, but you, you get the point. So, they, so the, scribes, or the scribes were the ones who developed the, the pattern. The Pharisees carried it, out, carried it out as closely as possible. Now the Pharisees were a sect or a party of, of uh, the Jewish religious leaders who were known for their strict adherence to the law. Now as they lived it out, as they practically lived it out, they would add regulations and clarifications to it. The, the Jewish people thought of them as being very pious or holy, they were generally viewed as wholly devoted to God and His law. You might think of them as the Roman Catholic or Greek Orthodox priests of, our, of Jesus' day. You know, the Roman Catholics are seen as being you know, holy and, and they were, they're devoted to God and they're set apart for God and, and you know, that, that sort of idea, and people see them that way. It's important to note, then, though, that there was some overlap between the scribes and the Pharisees. Some Pharisees were scribes, but not all. So you get the picture. The scribes, they're the ones that sat and debated the law and, told, and set up how you're to live, and the, the Pharisees lived it out. Now, the question is, how did the people view the scribes and the Pharisees? Well, together, the people viewed them as the holiest people they knew. They, they were the standard for holiness and righteousness. Common folk, 
Common folk like you and I never dreamed of attaining to their righteous standard. I mean, they, common folk never thought that they could actually be that, that standard. I mean, you have to understand, these people were put on a pedestal. They never dreamed that they could be, be like them. They had calculated that the law contains 248 commandments and 365 prohibitions. And they aspired to keep them all. Therefore, the people looked at, up to them as the standard bearers for righteousness. So then the question is, what was the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees? Well, we've kind of already seen this, but it bears uh, us summarizing it. As a group, the scribes and Pharisees formed the, religious, the Jewish religious leadership of the time. They were, they were the religious leaders. And as such, they, they set the pace for the entire society religiously. Unfortunately, this is unfortunate, their righteousness was formal and it was external. It had nothing to do with the heart. It was more concerned with ceremonial aspects of the law than the moral requirements of the law. It was more focused on man-made rules man-made rules based on their personal human rationalizations. They, they wanted to be seen as holy and righteousness, so they defined what holy and righteous meant. They were absolutely concerned about their image, so they set up the system so that they could look good. And they judged themselves as living up to the demands of the law. They saw themselves as excelling the efforts of the common man with all of their commandments and, and prohibitions. Matter of fact, they had a, even had one prohibition for each day of the year, 365. Now, I can't emphasize enough how zealous these men were. They, in fact, were serious about keeping the law. They, in fact, had long and heated debates about the law. They, they, in fact, would even rank the various commands. And they would have long, involved, detailed discussions about how to keep the commands. And uh, to the common folk that looked at them, they absolutely looked like pious, holy men. And I can tell you, say this, if you knew them, they would have looked like the most pious and holy men you knew on the outside. But I want you to recognize that Jesus was not thinking of the scribes and the Pharisees at their worst. He was thinking of them at their best. They scrupulously observed the letter of the law. They absolutely played the part of righteousness. They simply missed the manner of that the manner of obedience is absolutely critical. Sadly, in their pride, in their hubris, they didn't recognize that Pharisaic legalism, outward conformity, is not sufficient unto salvation. Doing the works of the law will never save you. And they didn't recognize that. They, they were so prideful, they didn't recognize that they were being legalistic. So when Jesus says that His disciples' righteousness, now He's speaking to His disciples when he says that his disciples' righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, that would have been absolutely shocking to his hearers. You're telling me that the most holy and righteous men that I know fall short of the righteousness that it takes to enter the kingdom of heaven. 
That's exactly what is being said. But they didn't recognize that Jesus knew what was in the heart of man. The Apostle John tells us in John 2.24 and 25 that our Lord Jesus knew all men because He had no need that anyone bear witness concerning men for He Himself knew what was in men. You see, Jesus, our Lord, was not fooled by the scribes and Pharisees. He was not fooled by their outward appearance of righteousness. He understood the putrid condition of their hearts. And later in Matthew 23, Jesus gave uh, this, a, a scathing woe to them. In Matthew 23, 27-28, He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs which on the outside appear beautiful, but on the inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. In cleanness, in this way you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Boy, if you're a Christian here today, you better hope that the Lord doesn't see you in that way. Beloved, so many men, so many people in this world have that type, this type of outward righteousness. They look good. They carefully disguise their lives by whitewashing everything. Some of them live in nice houses and they have a nice little nest egg and they drive a nice car. They attend church on Sunday, yet they avoid a church that interferes with their lives too much. Some of them avoid the trappings of the world. They want you to think that they're pious. They want you to think that they're avoiding worldliness. And they've carefully constructed a life that looks holy to outsiders, but inside they proudly entertain ungodliness in their hearts. And only those closest to them can, can sense something is amiss, so they keep most people at arm's length. They want you to think that they look good. They measure their righteousness by how well they keep their own interpretation of God's commandments. They've interpreted them them in their own way, and they measure their righteousness by how well they keep them. It's no different than the scribes and the Pharisees. They forget that the Bible teaches that whoever keeps the whole law yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. You see, the sin of the Pharisees was paying attention to outward demonstrations of righteousness only for appearance's sake. They failed to give attention to their heart. They failed to give attention to inward obedience. But you see, their wretched system was destined to come crashing down around them. Their their coming calamity can be illustrated by two eggs. The first egg, you might imagine, is a normal egg with its contents all intact. When you place it between the palms of your hand and press evenly from the ends, it cannot be broken. Have you ever tried that? Like literally, you cannot break it. Cannot be broken. God designed the structure of the egg to withstand that incredible pressure. The second egg may look exactly the same on the inside, but if it's had its insides removed when it's placed under the same palm pressure, it will break easily because it's empty on the inside. When you succumb to legalistic and outwardly righteous, the legalistic and outwardly righteous sin of of the Pharisees, you are empty of substance and will eventually crack under pressure. And your life will come crashing down around you. That's 
the danger. The danger is that you'll fall away from the faith when things get tough. You hear all these guys and these gals that are deconstructing? It's because life has gotten tough. Because they're expected to conform to the world and, and they come, they come, the, everything comes crashing down around them so they have to move away from true faith because they never had it. Martin Lloyd-Jones says the trouble with the Pharisees was that they were interested in details rather than principles. That they were interested in actions rather than in motives. And that they were interested in doing rather than in being, end quote. Friends, that is the trouble with all man-made and man-centered religion. I'll say that again. That is the trouble with all man-made and man-centered religion. And that's the trouble with your Christianity if it's man-made and man-centered. If it's centered on what you believe it ought to be and not what on the Lord says it is, that's the problem. So the question is, the question is look back at your text in 520, Matthew 5.20, The question you must ask yourself then is what kind of righteousness is required to enter the kingdom? In in effect, Jesus is saying that anyone who enters the kingdom of heaven must have a righteousness that surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees. What we need to recognize is that Jesus' standard was not more lenient than the scribes and Pharisees. Don't get it twisted. His standard is perfection. In Matthew 5.48, just a a little bit later in the sermon, he makes this shocking statement. He says this, Therefore you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And by the way, by the way, that's the same requirement from the Old Testament, is it not? Leviticus 19.2, Yahweh told Moses, Speak to all the congregation of the sons of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, Yahweh your God, am Holy. Church, you must recognize that God requires perfection to be in the kingdom, to be in fellowship with Him. Jesus uses a wording that means that the required righteousness to be in the kingdom must far, far exceed man-made righteousness. The scribes and the Pharisees were the best man has to offer. Let me say that again. The scribes and the Pharisees were the best man has to offer, and Jesus isn't just saying that we need to be a tick over the mark. He's saying that the the required righteousness to enter the kingdom of heaven is not even in the same stratosphere. The required righteousness is utterly impossible for man to achieve in his own power. Jesus literally demands the impossible. Later in Matthew chapter 19, Jesus told his disciples that it is easier for a camel to enter a, that it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now I know that most of us here aren't rich, or at least we don't think we are. But that's not the point. There has been, there's been some debate whether Jesus meant an actual camel through an actual needle. Like, he meant something different. Like, I think it was a, there's a gate that's, that you know, the camel has to get, kneel down to go through, and that's what they think he might have meant. That's not what he meant. I'm just, I'm just here to tell you, that's not what he meant. He actually, he actually meant 
an actual camel through an actual needle. That's it. That's what he meant. You know why that's what he meant? Because it's impossible. And that was his point. It is an impossibility. That was shocking to his disciples. Matthew records this great astonishment. He's in Matthew 19.25, it says, And when his disciples heard this, they were very astonished and said, Then who can be saved? You see, it was a rich young ruler who showed up, and Jesus says this to, them, to him, you know, that he turns them around and he leaves, and they're like, If that guy can't be saved, then who can? You know, then Jesus says, you know, eye through a, or a camel through the eye of a needle. I mean, they, they're going, who, who can be saved? And I don't want you to miss the gravity of this. You see, the point is, is God requires perfect righteousness to enter His kingdom. That's the point. Now, so they ask, the disciples ask, then who can be saved? Matthew 19.25. Listen to Matthew 19.26. And looking at them, Jesus said to them, with people, this is impossible. That's why I say well, he meant camel through the eye of a needle, because it's impossible. He's saying with people, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Hmm. Hmm. You see, God demands perfect righteousness. But praise be to God, he also gives us the power to accomplish it. Not power on our own terms. Make no mistake, it is not our power. It is not our power. Make no mistake, it is His power, His terms, His righteousness. You see, our righteousness, we can be righteous in and of ourselves. It's possible, like the scribes and the Pharisees, but I'm telling you, that righteousness is utterly worthless. God's perfect righteousness is impossible for man. But the impossible becomes possible in God's power for those who trust in Jesus. You see, God is looking for something much greater than legalistic righteousness. He wants something much deeper. He desires a righteousness of the heart. I love the words of Yahweh our Lord in 1 Samuel 16.7. says that Yahweh said to Samuel, do not look, speaking of, uh, of looking for the king, David, in this, in this situation, says, do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but God or Yahweh looks at the, the heart. Church, the, the prophets anticipated this new heart righteousness. They foresaw it as one of the blessings of the Messiah. God made this great promise through Ezekiel. In Ezekiel 36, 26, He says, I will give you a new heart, and I will put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. John Stott puts it this way. Now it is this deep obedience which is a righteousness of the heart and is only possible in who, those whom the Holy Spirit has regenerated and now indwells. This is why entry into God's kingdom is impossible without a righteousness greater than that of the Pharisees. It is, such, it is because such a righteousness is evidence of the new birth 
And no one enters the kingdom without being born again. Friends, it's easy for us to, it's incredibly easy for us to point fingers at the scribes and Pharisees. After all, didn't Jesus chastise them? But we need to understand how easy it is for us to fall into this external legalistic religion that's all about obeying rules. Martin Lloyd-Jones has said, the kingdom of God is concerned about the heart. It is not my external actions, but what I am on the inside that is important. A man once said that the best definition of religion is this, was this, religion is that which a man does with his own solitude. In other words, if you want to know what you really are, you can find the answer when you're alone with your thoughts and desires and imaginations, end quote. We need a new heart. We need a new heart. A heart that wants to obey. A heart that only the Lord Jesus can give you. If you're here today and you're a Christian, I beg you to evaluate your walk. Are you placing confidence in your own works of righteousness? So easy to do. It's so easy to do. To to have your ducks lined up in a row but inwardly you know your heart is far from Jesus. It's easy to do, but I can tell you you're in a dangerous place if you're in that place of doing so. Your your righteousness will never justify you. You need His perfect righteousness. It's it's simple. It's simple. It's 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 not this complicated thing. You believe. You believe His promises. Uh, Abraham, in Genesis 15, 6, Abraham believed in Yahweh and he counted it to him as righteousness. Do you believe? Do you believe what Christ has done? What Christ has accomplished on your behalf? Do you believe in Him and His works? Or do you believe in self and your own good works? If you're here today and you don't know Him, Perhaps you believe that good works, your good works are good enough. Right? You, you think that, that, you know, I helped the little lady cross the street with her groceries, right? I did my good deed for the day. Or, you know, I, I'm a little bit better than that next person. You know, I'm not as bad as Hitler, right? The question is, what's the line? Well, I'm here to tell you, your goodness is not good enough. You could, let, you could help every little old lady in this city cross the street with her groceries, and it wouldn't be good enough. Because that's not the point. And I'm not telling you not to help little old ladies with their groceries across the street, by the way. It's a good thing to do. Miss Elaine says, please, please help me. But that's not good enough. That's not going to get you into the kingdom. You need His perfect righteousness. Matthew 5.48 Therefore you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. But every one of us know that we have, for all have sinned and, and fall short of the glory of God. You currently fall short of the glory of God. You know how I know that? Because you're human. You're a sinner. You sin. Whoever keeps the whole law yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. You need His perfect righteousness. 
You see, He lived on this earth. He fulfilled the law. He fulfilled all of the requirements of the law. He Himself is the fulfillment. And if you are in Him, Paul promises in 2 Corinthians 5.21, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become what? Almost every Sunday I quote this, this verse because it's so important. So that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. If you're here today and you don't know Him, you can't trust in your own righteousness. It's a, you, it's a perfect righteousness that He requires. If you're here today and you believe you know Him and you're trusting in your own righteousness, you're in a dangerous place. You're in a dangerous place. Whoever keeps the whole law yet stumbles in one point has become guilty of all. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You this morning, this early afternoon. Praise You. Lord, I pray that You would give us a righteousness that so, so, so far exceeds the righteousness of the most righteous person who has ever lived outside of Christ. Lord, we're asking for the impossible. We're asking for the impossible because we know it's possible with You. It's so possible that it's already been accomplished. Father, may we trust not in our own righteousness, but in a righteousness, a perfect righteousness, an alien righteousness imputed to us. May we trust in a righteousness that only can be provided by You. In Christ's name, amen.